All right, let's go Colossians, or Galatians, excuse me, Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4. Um, if you don't have a Bible, grab one real quick. Uh, it's okay to run and go get it if you need it. Uh, there's like nobody, like at least not at your house, like judging you for that. So if you got to run and get it, besides your bedroom is like a second and a half away. All right. So just run and grab it real fast. Um, if uh, we're going to put the text for, our, for the morning up on your screen in just a moment. Uh, but man, there's just something that God seems to use in a special way when uh, you're holding his word in, his, in your own hands as it's being declared. I, I think he just kind of uses it differently than just words on a screen. Not that he can't use words on a screen. He just doesn't seem to use it in the same way. We're kind of a, he kind of made us into, to be a tactile people, even as we're dealing with uh, transcendent realities. And, and so uh, if you have a Bible, grab it. I think God will bless that. Open it up to Galatians chapter four. If you don't have a Bible, don't have one that you can call your very own, uh, give me a phone call this week. I'd love to try to fix that. Maybe we can send you one in the mail or something like that, whatever the case is. Uh, but uh, we would love for you to, to open up your Bible and join us as we Look at this stuff together. Galatians chapter 4. Um, so we started a new series a couple of weeks ago now that we're calling The Gospel is a Blank. The Gospel is a Blank. And the plan is to fill in that blank each week with a different word or a different phrase. Um, and the premise that kind of drives all of that for us is that I really think that one of the best ways to describe the gospel or to illustrate the gospel is to talk about it like it's a diamond. Right? And everybody's seen a diamond before, right? We, whether, you've, whether you've got one um, on your finger or you've only ever seen one on TV, we can all kind of picture a diamond in our heads. Maybe, maybe you've got one on your finger right now and it's a, this present as a, as a sign, a token of love because it's an engagement ring or something like that. Or maybe it's a, some other part of uh, some other piece of jewelry. Or maybe, like me, you don't wear any diamonds. Like, I don't have any fancy jewelry. Like, in my head, because I'm immature, I think cartoon. Like, Literally in my head, when I think diamond, I picture something like this, all right? Just cartoon engagement ring. I, I just jacked this right off of Google, all right? And so this is what I see in my head. But whether what you think of when you think diamond is real thing or something in a jewelry case that you can't afford or just the simple, immature cartoon version, all of us kind of get what a diamond is supposed to do. It's supposed to be seen with awe. It's supposed to be kind of beheld and enjoyed and, and just kind of delighted in. The correct way to look at a diamond is to admire it. To admire it, to, to spin it around and to, to kind of take it in from every possible angle. And the gospel, man, it, it's, it's the same way. Multiple facets, but all of them a part of the same singular jewel, the same valuable gift from God that's meant to deepen our awe of him. The gospel is like a diamond. And so, so over the course of this series, what we're doing is we're spinning that diamond around. We're spinning it around ever so slowly. Have you, have you seen the gospel from, from this angle? Man, just look at it. Oh, wait, 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 wait. Have you seen the gospel from this angle? Look how the light hits it just so. And a couple weeks ago, we, when we kicked all this stuff off, we, we said that the gospel is a promised reality. 
That was the, the first facet of this gospel diamond that we looked at, that, that the gospel was God's plan, uh, God's plan from, from even before the foundation of the world. He was, he was doing something, that, that the events that, that play out throughout Holy Week, uh, Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, his, his arrest, his death on the cross, his resurrection from the dead, uh, those weren't being made up on the fly. They were eternally ordained events that God was working in and through in order to save a people for himself. No one took Jesus' life from him, right? We all know that. He laid it down of his own accord. He came for the purpose of dying. And then on Good Friday, we spun the diamond just a little bit and we looked at, we looked at how the gospel is also a narrative. It's not some cute little moral parable. No, it's a real story involving real people in a real place at a real moment in history. It's a story that changes the way you see the world, and it's a story that forever affects the way that you live. And then last Sunday, Easter Sunday, we looked at how the gospel is a transaction, a trade, a cosmic trade that has been made on your behalf, your behalf. If you are a Christian, you have given something up and you have received something in return. Jesus took your sin and Jesus took the penalty that's owed for your sin and he gave you in return his own righteousness. Jesus suffered, willingly suffered, joyfully even suffered under the wrath of God. He paid your penalty for your sin in your place. And he now clothes you in his own perfect, don't need to add anything to it because you can't righteousness. If you have placed your faith in Jesus and in Jesus alone, you now stand guiltless before God because Jesus' righteousness is enough. That's an incredibly wonderful gospel reality, but it also leads us to this morning. Oh, in church, the diamond can yet be spun again. And so what angle do we get to look at God's gospel jewel from today? The gospel is a family identity. A family identity. All right, so, so what do you normally think of when you think family, right? Like, I think most people, or at least that's, that's what goes on in my head, I think most people think of their own family, right? You, you probably start picturing faces. Some, some people might go a different route, and they might, they might think more of the idyllic uh, nuclear family that doesn't have any dysfunctions, you know, the, the, that none of us actually have. Nobody actually has that family, but still somehow all of us kind of have that buried deep in the back of our imaginations, right? Some people may go that route, uh, but I think most people immediately start picturing their own family, and for good and for ill. Like, you, you think of your parents. You think of that black sheep brother of yours, or that crazy aunt. And if you don't think that you have any of those kind of people in your family, it might be because you are those kind of people in your family. If you've got kids, you, then you probably think about them. <laughs> Let's be honest, in a COVID-19 world, how fondly you think of your kids might be dependent on whether or not they're still living in your house right now. You empty nesters, I'm going to guess that you like your kids a lot more than some other folks at this, you know, this week. I'll, I'll, that's not my experience, though. That's just what I hear other people say. But listen, when we think of family... Not, not only do you think of specific people and specific faces, oh, but you think of 
the depth of relationship with each and every one of those people, right? You think of story after story after story of, of, of things that tie you together that go way beyond a mere family tree. And granted, many of us, I mean, we can be honest, many of us have less than stellar relationships with our family. It, it's true. But even in that moment, oh, even in that moment, that, that's an indicator of something. That's an indicator that, that maybe we've all been created for and long for something uh, better, a, a better way. See, whether you're, you see your family as average or you rightly see your family as a dumpster fire, maybe that idyllic picture all buried in the back of our heads is there for a reason. Maybe it's, maybe it's there to point us to something. Maybe we all get frustrated and long for a family that's just outside of our reach because we've actually been created for an eternal one. Let me show you what I mean. Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4. So Galatians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the churches in the region, the Roman region of Galatia. Think central Turkey nowadays. And it's written pretty early on, we believe, in Paul's ministry. In fact, uh, there's some debate over exactly when Galatians is written, and there's actually debate over whether or not Galatians was his very first letter. Some think it was 1 Thessalonians. I actually happen to be in the Galatians camp, but I don't think it actually matters. Uh, But the whole point of Galatians is to correct a church or churches who had gone off of the rails concerning the gospel, gone off the rails theologically. Similar to last week, right, when we studied uh, the Colossian church, Paul's letter to the Colossians. Uh, Some people crept in, they asserted themselves as teachers within the body, and they began leading people astray by saying that faith in Jesus wasn't enough. They needed to add all of these other things on top of that. And in Galatians' case... It's practicing all the Jewish ceremonial laws about diet and washing in a certain way and things like circumcision. And just like in Colossians, man, Paul goes off. He ain't having it. The fun part, though, is that he goes off way harder, way more forcefully here. Um, He uses some language in uh, the back half of this letter that if I personally were to use it in the middle of an argument, I I would get in a lot of trouble. Um, But Paul gets away with that because he's the Apostle Paul. Um, But uh, what that translates to is that that Colossians, or Galatians, sorry, has long been the epistle of choice for all the hotheads in the church, myself included. But in chapters 3 and 4 of Galatians, Paul is working through the Christian's relationship with with God's law. How do we see it? Uh, Are we still obligated to follow it? Does that relationship shift at all now that Jesus has done what Jesus has done? And, And the answer to that last question is, yeah, actually it has. It has changed. It has shifted. And the picture that Paul uses to illustrate that idea is that of a child and his tutor. A child and his tutor, he argues that the law serves as a temporary guardian and an instructor that's meant to point us to, lead us to Christ. And so Paul continues that logic into chapter 4, and so look at it with me. Galatians 4, starting in verse 1. He says this, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. 
Verse 3, in the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. So let's call a time out there. Uh, so the picture that Paul uses here is that of a child who has to be taught what is right and what is appropriate. Because he is immature, he has to be disciplined and brought under control. But the aim of that tutoring the aim of that discipline is that the child will one day eventually graduate beyond that into manhood. And until that day comes, well, that child really isn't any different than a slave would be in that house. He's not mature yet. He, he's under someone else's authority. And all three of the cultures that are bearing weight on Paul's current audience would have immediately understood this picture. Uh, uh, Jewish culture, Greek culture, Roman culture, they would have immediately understood this picture because all three of those cultures have a coming-of-age moment for young boys in their culture. The Jews still practice theirs today, right? They, they call it the bar mitzvah. There's this moment that a boy enters into manhood, and in that moment, when that moment finally comes, their status in the family shifts. It changes. They move from being a mere child to being a son and heir. And I know, I get that saying that out loud right now is going to cause some dissonance in some of you. I really do understand that. Why? Because well, this is one of the countless places where the culture that the Bible was written in and the theology flowing out of that culture, it doesn't look anything at all like the culture we find ourselves living in. They're almost completely different. See, see, the idea of sonship in the Bible has less to do with bloodline and way more to do with looking and acting like your father. Looking and acting like your father. Paul says, Paul says here in Galatians 4 that, that we're all hanging out under the law like little kids needing to be brought under control until the day comes that a massive shift takes place and sonship occurs. So what exactly causes that shift? Because I'll be real honest with you, I, I don't think I have it naturally in me to move from immaturity to a mature looking like and acting like God. Oh no, Stephen, you don't give yourself enough credit. Just a cursory reading of the Bible would lead me to believe that none of you have it either. It's not in me, and I'm pretty sure it's not in you either. So, so what changed? What causes the shift? Look at verse 4. Paul says, but... Oh, church, some of the best verses in the Bible start with the word but. Despite what we are, despite what we are owed, despite what, what is rightfully you know, owed to us, but. It's a good word. Verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Okay, so two verses, but it's only one sentence. Just one sentence. And whether you know it or not, that, is one, that one sentence is, I think, the best summation of the gospel in one sentence that you will ever come across. It really is. 
So I, th I think it would probably be wise to back it up and take it piece by piece. Uh, just, just the way that my head works, that's what we're going to do this morning. Paul says, when the fullness of time had come. When the fullness of time had come. So at the very moment, the very instant that God intended it, God carried out his plan that existed from before the foundation of the world. The, the promised reality of the gospel that we looked at a couple weeks ago was fleshed out in real time and space. God doesn't do random. He, it was his plan, and then he acted on that plan. Variable after variable after variable. Jesus came at the exact right moment in history to accomplish what he planned to do. And we could talk about all the different variables. We could, we could talk about the theological variable. Right? God's people had just come out of the Babylonian exile, which kind of eradicated idolatry in the camp. Right? And so they were theologically positioned to actually hear from God now. We can talk about the, the functional variables and this new dedication to God's word after the exile and how the synagogues popped up all over the countryside so that they could press into God's word together. We can talk about the linguistic variable with the majority of the known world speaking the singular Greek language. We can talk about the political variable, the Pax Romana, and how it was easy for God's people, this brand new infant church, to carry the gospel all over the place. Variable after variable after variable. But the common refrain always comes back to this. How great is our God. He is mighty to be praised. But that's also just the very first clause in this sentence. There's a lot more coming on the heels of that. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son the eternally begotten, yet with no beginning. The second member of the Trinity, God himself, steps onto the scene of human history in the person and work of Jesus. The one who is eternally co-equal with the Father in power and in majesty and in glory forever is sent by the Father, initiated and sent by the Father. Jesus is fully God. As Colossians 1 tells us, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Fully God. But we also learn that he is born of woman. And so this eternal God has somehow added humanity to himself without changing or losing his godness. He's 100% fully God, and he's 100% fully man. And if you're asking how exactly that works, I don't know either. I wish I could explain it better. But isn't it good news that he's not daunted by that and gets it? Oh, but listen. Because he is fully man, because he is fully man, that means that he gets me. He understands me truly. He's lived like I live. And he's navigated temptation like I have to navigate temptation. The book of Hebrews tells us that we have a great high priest because he has suffered like you and I suffer. But Paul's not done yet. He says next that Jesus was born under the law. Jesus carried obedience to God's law on his shoulders from day one, and he was flawlessly faithful, remained faithful all the way to the end. 
He accomplished what you and I can't. He, he accomplished what you and I are not capable of accomplishing. Perfect righteousness. Perfect righteousness. But why? Like, why did he come to do that? Why was that even necessary? Well, Paul tells us next to, to redeem those who are under the law. And we saw this last week, right? Like, we, we talked about this Easter Sunday. Even though we are separated from God because of our sin, even though uh, that sin deserves the punishment, we rightly deserve the, his wrath, Jesus pays the debt that we owe through his death on the cross. We are purchased for God. Redeemed is just another transaction word. That's, right, that's why we use it for coupons, right? right? We are redeemed for God. And that leads us to the second to last clause in Paul's one-sentence gospel summation. And he starts off by saying, so that. If you've hung out around our church family for any length of time at all over the last few years, then you know that we make a pretty big deal of that little bitty phrase. So that. In grammar, it's called a conditional conjunction. We take two massive things and we link them together in a means to a greater end kind of way. I did blank so that I can do blank. I care way more about that second blank than I do about the first one. The first one is just a tool so I can get the second one. I really want the second one, so I'll do whatever's necessary to do that. So put the pieces together in your head here. In this haymaker of a one-sentence gospel summation, Paul just said that at the exact right moment in history, God sent the, God the Father sent God the Son to be born and live just like you and me, except not completely like you and me, because he was sinless like you and me aren't, right? Differently, because he was perfectly obedient to the law. And he did that so that he could purchase uh, us, you and me for himself so that so all of those things as massive as they are are nothing more than tools a means to a greater end so what is the greater end that we might receive adoption as sons adoption church family the gospel the status change from being an unruly child separated from God to being an intentionally adopted heir of the king of kings. The gospel is a family identity. A family identity. We said this last week that, that those who are saved by Jesus are not simply saved from something. We're saved to something. Going from, non, going from enemy to non-enemy, man, that sounds like a pretty sweet deal, except for the gigantic fact that there is infinitely more offered to you on the table here. Way more. Adoption. We've talked about this in here before, but man, adoption is a massive, massive reality. It is the intentional and costly act of bestowing love and provision and status upon someone that you're not obligated to give anything to. You have no tie there, and yet you give. Adoption is when you stand up for someone that you have no connection with, and you say, I'll be the one. I'll be the one to take care of you. I'll be the one to provide. I'll be the one to protect. I will go to extreme lengths to make you mine. I don't care what it costs. I'm in. 
Oh, church, don't you dare miss this facet of the gospel. Don't you dare miss it. God sent his son, yes, to pay the debt for your sin, but also in the very same moment, at great cost, to make you his. His. To redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Which leads us to verse 6. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. You are no longer a slave under a tutor off in the corner. A shift has occurred. You are now forever completely reconciled to God. Full access. You carry sonship in you as you look and act like your father. It's yours by right. But not only do you have access to the father, this means that you also have access to the rest of the family. The rest of the family. And just like your earthly one, man, we've got some black sheep brothers and some crazy aunts. Some people would argue that NBC has more than our share. I don't know what they're talking about. And truthfully, this side of heaven, there are some things that cause our dysfunction to rise to the surface every once in a while. But listen, there's also coming a day when each and every one of those dysfunctions will be forever undone. Forever undone. Wiped away by the gentle hand of our good Father. When I think of family, I think of story after story after story of things that tie us together that go way beyond a mere family tree. And I can't wait for this season to be over so we can make a bunch more stories together. I look forward to that day with untold eagerness. So spin the diamond this week and marvel at God's goodness to us. Marvel at it. If you're watching this and you're already a Christian, already a follower of Jesus, that, that's your response today. Each, each time we, we open up God's word together, God's word demands a response. It demands action. And so here you go. That's for you. If you're already a follower of Jesus, repent of sin and press into what God reveals about himself in Galatians 4. He is the good father who joyfully adopts you as his own. He gives you himself even as he gives you everything else. He's provided for you. He has positioned you to know and be known by him, to love and be loved. But can I ask you the harder question this morning? How have you pressed into him during this season? How have you pressed into him during this season? Because, like, listen, I, I think it's our default, each and every one of us, I think it's our default to want to pull away when things get really hard in life, right? I, like, I know I'm guilty of that sometimes. I do it too. I fail in this constantly. But listen, that's not what a son does. That's not what a son does. A son leans in. How have you, you, were, how have you pressed into him during this season? 
How have you responded to the circumstances around you? Have you pulled away or have you leaned in? I'm going to pray and we're going to sing that that'll be a time for you to respond to him this morning. Go do something with it. It's a glorious opportunity to do something with it. So that's why we do this. Maybe you need to respond in some other kind of way. Maybe it's to walk in obedience in baptism. Maybe you need to respond by, uh, by uh, joining this church family. Maybe it's saying yes to the call of missions that he's laying in front of you. Uh, we want you to respond in those ways too. So give me a call this week. I'd love to walk you through what those responses look like. If you're watching this and you're not a follower of Jesus yet, man, I'm glad you're hanging around, for real. I think it's cool that you're pressing in. I also think that God's working through that. I don't think it's an accident. I think he's moving you to where he wants you to be. And so the question becomes, how are you going to respond to that moving this morning? How will you respond to God? Listen, you respond the good, right way to respond in this moment is to meet Jesus. Meet Jesus. The Bible teaches that your sin separates you from God. It deserves his wrath. But it also teaches that in Jesus' goodness, in God's great love for you, not only does Jesus make payment for your sin through his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead, but he also fully reconciles you to God. He calls on you to respond to him in repentance and faith, to turn away from your sin and turn to him as uh, Savior and Lord alone. And you can do that this morning. You can do that right now. I'm going to pray and we're going to sing. Normally I'd be standing down front here calling people to come forward. But listen, you don't need that. You don't need me. You need Jesus. You need to call on him to save you. And you can do that without me. I can't call you to come forward. But listen, that doesn't mean we can't talk. You don't need me, but man, I'd love to walk you through this. Give me a call this week. Jump in the pastor's Q&A small group that we got happening in just a little while. That's okay. I don't care. Let's talk. I'd love to walk you through what this response of faith looks like. Let's respond to God's word this morning. But listen, let's respond together as an adopted church family right now. Father, you're good to us. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for Galatians Thank you for the family reality of the gospel, the family identity of the gospel. Oh God, we are full of black sheeps and crazy ants. And yet you are glorified through that. You, you gained more fame and, and more wonder, more celebration of your name by saving all the crazy ants. Oh, we love you. Not because we loved you first, but because you went and got us. Because in your goodness and in your mercy and in your great love for those who are far from you, you stood up and said, I will make you mine. I will provide. I will protect. I will save. At great cost, you're mine. I'm in. God, I know my heart. I know I am the unruly child who needs to be brought to heal. That's exactly why you came. 
That's why you sent your son. That's why Jesus came and died on the cross to bring us from life, from death to life, and from immaturity to maturity. God, would you help us press in well to our family? Would you help us press in well to this gift you've given us to love and be loved, to serve and be served, to know and be known? God, would you create a deeper longing in our hearts for the day that we get to meet again together soon? We want to be safe. We want to do the right thing, but we also really want to hang out with our family. So help us navigate this well. I have the suspicion that you give wisdom to those who ask humbly, so we'll do that. God, for those who are on the outside of the family looking in, would you adopt some kids today? Would you open eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to know? Would you bring people from death to life in this moment? Would you save a people for yourself? God, however we can serve them, let us find those avenues and let us press in well. But you don't need me. You don't need any of our pastors here or staff here. You don't need uh, uh, technology in this way. You save people. That's just it. So would you save people right now? Would you call them to yourself? Make them yours. Be the Father. Would you help us praise you as you do it? God, help us respond well. As we sing, as we put action of what your word has called us to. Would you give us courage to step out in faith? And would you give us success as we move forward? We need you in every breath and in every step and in every moment. And so in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.